Welcome to the On Becoming Educated podcast, where I, Paula Foon, will share my experience as a first-generation PhD student. So first off, some good news. In the last episode, I announced that I'm going to be releasing a personal statement workbook soon. I now have a date. This workbook will be released on June 21st on my website, www.onbecomingeducated.com. It's more than 50 pages of step-by-step instructions, examples, and guidance on how to write a personal statement. I designed it to help you think through your experiences and the story that you want to share with university admissions officers. Most of the examples in the workbook are, are personal to me and are um, are my own writing. So all I got to say is if you, if you get this workbook, you'll get to know me pretty well. I also designed this workbook so that if you work through the activities, you'll be able to have at least a working draft of your personal statement when you get to the end. At most, you'll have a clear idea of what you want to write about and you'll have a personal statement. As we get closer to the release date, I'll be sharing some pages from the workbook on my social media. So if you're not already following the show, I invite you to do so on both Facebook and Instagram at On Becoming Educated. Um, a while back, I had also announced that I wanted to start recording episodes in Hmong or in the Hmong language to really start using the Hmong language more and to really put more content using Hmong out there. I found out that that was really hard to do right now because <laughs> I didn't have time. So what I'm going to do instead is record short one-minute videos of pieces of writing and that I've done in Hmong. Um, they're not really super thoughtful pieces, but they're just kind of pieces that came to me um, sometimes while I'm having coffee or sometimes while I'm, I'm on a walk or on a run or something that I jotted down. The first video is about ma lokao, or rice made in a pot. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> and it's uh, right it's right now it's up on Instagram and Facebook. So uh, feel free to check it out there. And um, I hope to be releasing more of these short videos soon in the future. And now on to the show. My father used to be a powerful storyteller. In the early years, when we first arrived in the United States, he would gather us around him after dark and tell epic tales of monstrous floods, sky kings, orphan boys, and terrifying tigers. His tales wove important lessons in a language that our ancestors used to transfer collective memory and intangible cultural heritage from one generation to the next. This rich cultural background grounds my way of seeing the world. But my experiences and observations as an immigrant and a minority in the U.S. shape and continue to shape it. I came to the U.S. in 1990, the oldest of seven children. My parents had little to no formal education. They spoke almost no English, especially in those first years in the U.S., trying their best to survive in an unfamiliar world with unfamiliar rules. My English skills eventually surpassed my parents, 
and I spent most of my childhood translating for them in various circumstances, mainly for which a child should not be translating. This shift in English ability paralleled a shift in authority for me, where my view of those who know began to shift from my parents to professionals holding official titles in official spaces. Eventually, I came to rely less on my parents' authority and knowledge and more on the professionals. As I went through a social and cultural assimilation to Western life, my way of knowing also went through assimilative conditioning. As a student, I relied heavily on the text because cultural assimilation taught me not all knowledge is created equal, only important knowledge is documented. I also relied heavily on teachers and professionals, the authorities with whom I had the most contact. And because most texts are written by white people with a Western perspective, and most teachers and professors are white, teaching a Eurocentric curriculum with a Western pedagogy, I came to rely heavily on white people as authority. By the time I started working as a professional in higher education, I was deep in my belief that only the published word had any authority at all. Author and scientist Robin Kimmerer writes in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, quote, In moving from a childhood in the woods to the university, I had unknowingly shifted between worldviews from a natural history of experience in which I knew plants as teachers and companions to whom I was linked with mutual responsibility and to the realm of science, end quote. My own shift in worldview was a longer process embedded in the larger context of cultural and language assimilation. It was not until I developed a writing intervention for Hmong students at the university where I used to work as a writing coordinator that I realized how separated I had become from my natural history of experience, as Kimmerer says. The intervention situated Hmong students' reflective writing in the Hmong diaspora, using Hmong writers as inspiration. As the facilitator, I participated along with the students, and in one session, in a deep reflection of my father's storytelling, I realized that my natural history of experience was in spoken Hmong, and I had become nearly completely separated from it. As the speaker of a minoritized language, I did not become aware of the hegemonic power of English until I was already in college, until the language I spoke at home, the language with which my father told his tales, already felt like lead on my tongue. The language was nearly erased from me. And I know it has been erased from many others who came to the U.S. when they were children or who were born here. My pursuit of a doctorate in education then is the pursuit of understanding. Why is the Hmong language disappearing? How will this affect the way Hmong people construct and understand their worlds? What implications does this have for Hmong students? Most importantly, can I prevent the language from disappearing?
The excerpt you just heard is from an Introduction to Inquiry class I took this semester, where we spent a lot of time exploring our own epistemological orientation. Generally speaking, epistemology is a way of thinking and knowing grounded by such questions as, where does knowledge come from? What is true and how do we know it's true? Our epistemological orientation, which we developed through our experiences, shapes the way we design research. So spending a whole semester thinking about what my epistemological orientation is, how I developed it, and how it differs from other epistemologies has been profound. My experience as a Hmong woman who has been repeatedly minoritized, othered, and erased is an experience of coloniality, and this has shaped my inclination towards research that is grounded in freedom. So I learned this semester that I lean towards what's called a critical constructivist research paradigm, where researchers seek to unearth or expose things that oppress people. Researchers who subscribe to this way of thinking don't believe that knowledge needs to be objective, but that knowledge is created within social, cultural, and historical contexts. It's a little wordy, but basically this way of thinking frames my research in two main questions. One, what role do power structures play in my research? And two, how is meaning constructed in my research? As I close out my first year of grad school of this PhD program at UC Berkeley, I'm realizing a few things. First, the more I read, the more I think, the more questions I have. The more I write, the more questions my professors ask, the more questions I have. I mean, I think if we look at the word research closely, we'll see that it isn't meant to be, to, to ever be done. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines research as a studious inquiry or examination. Oxford Languages defines research as the systemic investigation into and study of materials and sources in order to establish facts and reach new conclusions. To search is to look for something with a goal of finding it. So to research is to look for it again and again and again. Research then is never quite ever done, which means if you're looking for the answer to a question, you might find an answer, but you may never find the answer perhaps because there is no such thing as the answer in research, although some people might like to think so. And I think that's really one of the important things I learned this year, that research is about continuing to ask questions. So all in all, I think I am on the right track. I came to this school and this program with questions, but now I have even more questions. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually a really good thing. I can tell you that this experience is completely different from my first foray into grad school. Maybe it's because of my age. I was 23 the first time around, and I'm 36 now. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's my professors and my peers. Maybe it's the school. Or maybe it's all of these things and more combined 
All I know is that I'm being challenged more than ever was about the way I see and think about the world. I'm being challenged about who I am as a Hmong woman in the United States. I'm being challenged about who I am as a researcher and not just a researcher, but an ethnic researcher, a racialized researcher, an immigrant researcher, and what that means in the United States and what that means to be able to do research at a school like UC Berkeley. And this is all good. This is all very good because it's going to make me the best researcher I can be. I remember taking a class in my first PhD program, which I never finished, (laughs) about bias and objectivity and leaving that class feeling like I really didn't understand what we discussed at all. To quickly define objectivity, it's the quality of not letting your personal feelings or biases influence what you are doing. So in this class, we discussed such questions as, was objectivity possible or not? Was it possible to conduct research uninfluenced by your personal feelings or opinions? The professor never said one way or the other. (laughs) And the discussions just kind of went round and round in a dizzying circle. What I learned in my inquiry class this semester is that there's no such thing as objectivity, although traditional researchers would like to think so. Statistics can only be objective to a point because human interpretation of those numbers come into play at one point and human interpretation has pre-established human subjectivity, no matter how much that human claims to be objective design of every aspect of a research project itself is also influenced by subjectivity, which could be our gender, race, ethnicity, education, social class, language, or a bunch of other things that has influenced our feelings and biases. As humans, we don't exist outside of those things, so how can we expect to conduct research outside of those things? This semester, I was especially inspired by a reading by educational researcher Gloria Latson-Billings, who calls for the necessity of subjectivity because it, quote, reveals the ways that dominant perspectives distort the realities of the other in an effort to maintain power relations, end quote. She insists on conducting research in racialized discourses and ethnic epistemologies, And I'm going to actually read her quote here because I think she said it so perfectly. She said, quote, not merely to color the scholarship, but to challenge the hegemonic structures and symbols that keep injustice and inequity in place, end quote. Our personal feelings experiences and biases have the ability to distort. There's no doubt of that. So we should be aware of them and of what they might be distorting in our research. But we shouldn't be trying to erase ourselves completely from our research. Instead, we should actively use our subjectivity for its ability to define what Matson Billings calls the limits of Eurocentric research and to develop even more rigorous, rich, and revealing research. And that's exactly what I plan to do. 
Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast listening platform of your choice to be notified when new episodes are up. If you would like to support this podcast, a rating and review would go a long way. Podcasts with ratings and reviews are more likely to be found by listeners. So I would very much appreciate it if you can take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast. If you would like to make a donation to help me run this podcast, you can do so at ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. That's ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. Every dollar helps. Follow me on Instagram at bypavu and the podcast at onbecomingeducated. Lastly, to access transcripts and submit listener questions, go to www.onbecomingeducated.com.